Welcome to episode six of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of what's catching the eye with the news at the moment, Tony Porter, the Surveillance Camera Commissioner, has just published his sixth annual report outlining progress realised over the past 18 months and also his future plans. The Commissioner's report covers the period from 1st of April 2018 to the 31st of December last year. In the 66-page document, Porter highlights his intervention into the High Court case regarding automatic facial recognition technology and the fact that his role, and indeed the role of the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice itself, are key parts of the legal framework. Porter also focuses on his survey of all police forces in England and Wales. This was conducted in a bid to understand the latter's surveillance camera footprint and how forces are actively complying with legal requirements under the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012, as well as the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice. The key point of note here is that Porter highlights what he refers to as a lack of strategic governance around partnership working with regards to surveillance cameras themselves. Indeed, the Commissioner has already written to forces on this very issue. Importantly, Porter mentions the need for building a momentum behind the National Surveillance Camera Strategy for England and Wales, and also through the AMPR Independent Advisory group looks at the establishment of a working group to assess the impact of cloned and defective plates on the police national ANPR service, while at the same time proposing options to strengthen the manufacturing, security and supply chain. Referring to the survey of police forces, Porter comments, and I quote, the survey shows that the use of integrated and highly sophisticated video surveillance platforms will continue to increase. The general public will expect the police to maximise the value of this technology in order to help protect them and keep them safe. A cornerstone of this debate has been the use of facial recognition technology and the government's commitment to refresh the surveillance camera code of practice and governance of biometric technology and surveillance itself. At the time of writing, this has not yet been published. This issue must be addressed at the earliest possible opportunity to increase confidence. Last year, Porter reported that the overlap between police service use of video surveillance platforms will become even more connected to that of private and commercial organisations. His survey indicates to the Commissioner that there's a lack of strategic grip by Chief Constables when it comes to the nature and extent of these partnerships. Porter is adamant that the reporting of biometric technology's use at King's Cross, Meadow Hall and the Trafford Centre underscores this assertion. The pro bono work and efforts of leaders across the video surveillance industry to support the National Surveillance Camera Strategy for England and Wales continues to deliver quite remarkable support, according to Porter and has realised key successes, all of which are highlighted within the 2018-2019 annual document. Porter feels that his report for the Home Secretary highlights the inadequate support and investment from the government for this work. The National Surveillance Camera Strategy for England and Wales delivers a full and comprehensive approach to the issue of public space surveillance cameras, and has secured the backing of numerous industry experts. Last year, in fact, Porter challenged the government to recognise this support and provide real and meaningful resource to help enable its delivery. He asserts that this support hasn't been forthcoming. In fact, the size of Porter's team has actually dwindled. Certainly, Porter's annual report pulls no punches in offering a strong assessment of what he believes is required going forward. The Surveillance Camera Commissioner has also reiterated calls made in previous reports for an extension to the Surveillance Camera Code of Practice itself. According to Porter, the government needs to have more confidence in the code in achieving its purpose of driving up standards in what's now an increasingly an agenda that attracts significant public attention and debate. Porter was grateful to the High Court in granting him permission for his intervention in a recent court case concerning live facial recognition technology. The judgment, which is now subject to appeal, highlights an argument that Porter has been presenting to the government for several years. Facial recognition technology's use concerns much more than privacy and data. Its use also extends far beyond the remit of the new Data Protection Act 2018 and concerns the appropriate use of relying on common law 
and the complex web of laws and precedents. Porter believes the answer rests upon the government devising a more robust surveillance camera code of practice. As far as he's concerned, that code should incorporate stronger guidance as to the authorisation and use of such systems. Crucially, it should remain principle-based. Unlike those views expressed by other commentators, Porter doesn't believe we need a code for every biometrical surveillance modality. In his view, what we do require is a strong and principle-driven approach that enables relevant authorities to ensure the use of such technology is lawful. There's a great deal of debate around facial recognition systems just now. As reported on the Security Matters website, civil rights campaign group Liberty has thrown its hat into the ring by outlining five reasons why it believes police service use of such technology should be banned. We're going to be publishing some industry reaction to this controversial statement, so keep checking back on the website and our social media platforms. Companies are now becoming increasingly vulnerable to reputational risk, with 70% of them having experienced an event that has posed a threat to their reputation. That's according to the fifth annual Global Risk Landscape report produced by candidacy and business advisory firm BDO. The company's comprehensive survey of no less than 500 C-suite executives across the EMEA, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Asia-Pacific and the Americas shows that companies are alert to the dangers, with 25% saying shareholder price is a primary consequence of reputational damage. A quarter of respondents also believe customers will take their business elsewhere. Family-run businesses and manufacturers felt the highest reputational risk, it seems. Despite the threat, it's clear that too many companies remain reactive in their approach, with less than half, i.e. 45%, believing their crisis strategy is proactive and over a third, 35% in fact, considering themselves to be reactive when it comes to reputational issues. Trying to demonstrate corporate integrity while acting without values is an issue that can touch even reputable companies. BDO's survey reveals the scale of so-called integrity washing, with businesses worrying more about the perception of integrity than the practice itself. A significant 87% of executives believe their organisation is culpable, while almost half suggest that, as long as they're perceived to have integrity, they don't prioritise putting it into practice. Clearly, integrity is vital, with 99% of respondents agreed on that. Being trusted actually confers extraordinary advantages to a business and secures customer loyalty. Customers do tend to flock to brands they believe in, and that sense of integrity allows companies to outperform their rivals. However, BDO has found deep disagreement on who's responsible for transparency. One in three companies admit to being reactive on reputation. BDO is adamant that this is some way away from being the best strategy to adopt. A worrying 87% of respondents say their company may be guilty of the aforementioned integrity washing. As clients and consumers alike become more aware of social and corporate injustice, damage to company reputation, which is capable of destroying a business in a very short space of time, is now rising up the boardroom agenda. This state of affairs is long overdue. Since the global financial crash in 2008, public companies have faced what must feel like a barrage of new reporting requirements. Regulators have pushed for greater corporate transparency. The reason for them doing so is pretty simple. It's an attempt to regain trust and build reputations. Since 2008, of course, new global media channels have evolved, duly enlarging the public's access to information and the speed at which they receive it. At least in part, this has once again trained the spotlight firmly on corporate actions. In days gone by, reputational risk has been viewed as an outcome of other risks and not necessarily a standalone risk in its own right. This view has been gradually eroded because it's increasingly clear that reputation is critical to the viability of any company. Greater knowledge and more widespread means of communication have meant that societal norms and public expectations of companies have evolved as well. People's voices are now louder. There's more mood music going on. Opinions, be they valid or otherwise, can now spread around the world in a matter of seconds. Another core reason why reputational risk is more vital is because the balance between tangible and intangible assets has tipped towards intangible value, such as trust, reputation and goodwill. Such elements are not as easy to manage as physical ones, of course. It follows that the overall valuation of a business can be increasingly found in its intangible assets. Companies that try desperately to hide wrongdoings are suffering for longer and deeper, simply because, as stated, news travels pretty fast these days. It's far less easy to mend a brand than it is a malfunctioning machine.
How are businesses viewed in all manner of different aspects, not just in terms of its deliverables like products and services, but also its impact on society as an employer is now right at the top of the agenda. This is a new phenomenon in terms of its importance. Traditionally, risk is dealt with by risk experts, while reputation tends to be managed by the corporate affairs or communications teams. When those two teams work in silos and without any meaningful collaboration, it's very much the case that risks themselves can develop undetected. That's when companies face genuine risk exposure. In today's world, aligning commercial interests with social ones should be a key focus. Also, it's not a question of unlimited disclosure, but relevant disclosure. Whether we've reached a tipping point in disclosure terms will likely be determined by how corporates handle the next financial crisis. By all accounts, there's a particularly nasty one looming on the horizon. There's much work to be done when it comes to reputational risk management, that's clear. Undoubtedly, the subject of integrity should now be woven into the fabric of any business and demonstrated at every turn. Our first guest this time around is David Rubens, Executive Director at the Institute of Strategic Risk Management. A chartered security professional, David is a recognised authority on strategy around the management of complex events, and particularly so within the multi-agency crisis management framework. David holds a doctorate in security and risk management from the University of Portsmouth and has served as a board director for the Security Institute. I chatted with David to find out his views on core topics like business resilience, which should now be front and centre in the boardrooms of UK PLC. David, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. First of all, how do you think the world looks right now from a security and risk management perspective in particular? Well, Brian, um, straight in, huh? I mean, <laughs> where was the easy introductory questions? It's a question that we're all asking ourselves, isn't it? Um, the truth of the matter is, I don't think anybody knows what September is going to look like. You know, today's the 25th of June. We're three months into COVID-19. Trying to look at what the next stage coming out of that might be, reopening the economy, et cetera, et cetera, with, with, the, with the fears that there'll be second spikes in terms of infection rates. We're beginning to see the possibility of social unrest in that once you release the COVID-19 lockdown, you know, is, how easy is this to maintain control of that? So in a generic, in a general term, I don't think anybody knows what, what's going on. And anybody who claims to know what's going on, I think is either a fool or a liar, as they say. On the other hand, um, I'm, I've been speaking to quite a few companies and you can absolutely see the difference between those who are, who are still in shock from COVID-19, not sure what to do, acting as though this is a is still a completely disruptive event, and those that are basically getting on with it. You know, they're, they're, they're making sense of what's going on, they're thinking about it, they're adapting, they're putting stuff in place. So in terms, in terms of, of what the world looks like, the world will carry on. I mean, one of the things that you learn is, you've been around a few times, is, you know, the world does carry on. You know, whether it's 9-11 or the 2008 economic shock or flooding or IT failures or whatever it might be, the world does carry on. So... Whatever does happen, there will be opportunities and there will be a differentiation between those organisations which are good at doing this stuff and can get on with it and those that aren't. So I think I think we just go back to that, that, you know, that Chinese saying, interesting times, interesting times. But within interesting times, there's both chaos and there are both those opportunities as well. So that, that's really all I can say. You know, it's chaotic, uh, but I think the people who are looking around and doing some stuff with their, with their lives and their operations are going to, going to reap the benefit of that. There are clearly many issues and challenges then, David, but are there also opportunities available? Um, partnerships. If you say to me, my, my immediate reaction is partnerships, a collaboration. I think the way the world is at the moment, to go out and try and sell your services, I do something for you and you give me money. 
I think many, many organizations are just not in a state to pay any money. That's not what they do. And so if you are to create opportunities, I think it is very much about collaboration. It is about mutual support. It is about understanding what the world looks like right now to many people. I mean, it's understanding how the world looks like to them, but also understand, you know, what is it that you can bring to the table? If you try, if you come to, to, to an organization and try and sell them something in terms of opportunities, I think that they're going to push you away. If you come back and understand the challenges they're facing and become a solution provider and, and help them get their way through this, basically become a jungle guide. You know, I think as risk managers and crisis managers, uh, security managers, one of our roles is to, to offer our expertise in understanding how the jungle works and to be jungle guides and help organizations through that. And I think if you come in with that understanding and with a package that genuinely supports and helps and enhances what other people are trying to do, then you have the opening for a conversation. David, you have a background in business consultancy, teaching and academia. Do you think that allows you to have a better understanding of what's happening right now? And in terms of what we can do to engage with the chaotic world you've described in your own series of webinars of late? I think it does. I mean, yeah, we have a number of webinars. We have the coronavirus um, campfire which we have twice a week, and which has been going for, I think, for 16 weeks now. So that's twice a week for 16 weeks. That's been a real longitudinal study. Um, we have people just dialing from all over the world, just having a chat about coronavirus, how it affects them all over the world. And we've also set up the FLIC, the Fast Learning for the Industry in Crisis webinar, which is one hour a week, um, looking at some aspect of classical risk management and how that sort of that can be seen in terms of, of COVID-19 and what we're doing here. One of the advantages that having an academic background does it allows you to see patterns, allows you to see shapes. It gives you a, a framework, a starting position. Um, and I think that for many organizations, um, COVID-19 has been a wake-up call in that their understanding of the risk environment that they are operating in is not as well-developed or sophisticated or robust or resilient as they thought it had been. And from an academic perspective, most of the problems that people are facing in terms of engaging with and making patterns out of and sense-making in a chaotic world, are actually quite predictable. So this is not, you know, although COVID-19, COVID I have to say, Brian, COVID-19 is not that bad. We should not be in this state. It is not a black swan event. You know, we've been having um, global pandemic scares every two years, the last 20 years. You know, we had SARS, we had MERS, Zika, H1N1, swine flu, uh, Ebola, et cetera, et cetera. We should know how to do this, you know, and, and also, of course, uh, pandemic, influenza pandemic was number one on the, on the UK government's risk register. So we should have been better than this. And I think what an academic background aligned with practical operational experience, plus what I've learned through my own consultancy practice, allows you to see patterns. And if you see patterns, that allows you to, you know, to, 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 to give yourself situational awareness within the world, but also to have an understanding of how things are developing. And, and the more, the further ahead you can see and understand those patterns, then the better you are able to engage with it. It's evident that some companies have been caught out by the pandemic in terms of a lack of preparedness, David. Do you think it's now long overdue that topics like security and business resilience should be topping the agenda of board of directors in UK PLC and indeed overseas? <laughs> well, I think there have been. I mean, my, I, I, would, I would reverse engineer that to you, Brian, and say, well, where are all these consultants that are saying this? Resilience has been the number one buzzword for the last 10 years. And so all these consultants selling, you know, selling these huge packets of consultancy in terms of business resilience, what happened? You know, why, why didn't that work? Um, so I think there has been an awareness. What I think has not happened is we haven't had a robust professional attitude. And Brian, I've been speaking to you with this for 20 years. You know, you've been, you've been following stuff that's going on for 20, over 20 years. You know, 
the professionalization of our industry. Um, why is it still that we have, you know, security risk consultants who are security risk consultants because they were chief superintendent in Manchester Police Force for 20 years, or they were, you know, lieutenant colonel in Kandahar, and suddenly they are corporate risk managers. So I think that it has been an awareness, certainly over my career, certainly over the last 20 years, you know, certainly 15 years, I have seen an, a, an increasing awareness of the value that this potentially could bring. The problem is, in my opinion, that we don't have a package of services to bring. If you go to an accountant or an architect or an engineer, they have a body of knowledge they can bring to you. And it seems to me that in this certain strategic risk and crisis management arena, what is lacking is not the desire to have that services, but but the package of services that, that, our, um, that our, our industry can bring to the table. Given the impact that COVID-19 has had on so many sectors, David, the readers of Security Matters might well be concerned about their own futures. Do you have any words of advice for them? Good question, Brian. Good question. Um, these, these are tough times, aren't they? I think these are, these are stressful times. I mean, there's, there's some of us, some of us who, you know, who are managing OK, more or less. And, and there's some people who are, who are generally hurting. Um, I think there's a lot of people generally hurting. I've been through periods in my life where, you know, I've, I've, I've had fear, you know, woken up in the morning fear about failure and money and family and all those things. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So the first thing I'd say is be aware of your own your own strengths and weaknesses and, 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 and you know, talk to people. And, and if you need help, talk to people. Um, talking is great. Being on your own and worrying is, is, is soul-destroying and life-destroying. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing is be strong. You know, this sector is for strong people. And not strong, you know, there's all different ways you can be strong. But breathe in, breathe, you know, basically breathe in, breathe out. And I think most of us have been through stuff where we understand on one level, however frightening it is, on the other level, we know this too shall pass and it will pass. And, and it's an opportunity to, 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 you know, to, 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 you know, to work out what we believe in, you know, what our values are, our families, our com- commitments, our connections, but also ourselves, you know, how we engage with the world in times of trouble. And I hope that people find a way of engaging with this in a way that they have hope and, you know, they can do things. And then, to be honest, Brian, if I was to say it in one phrase, be a good neighbour, you know, be part of your community. Um, you know, th- th- that is important. In, t- in times of, t- of toughness, your community becomes more and more important. Um, and it helps put things in perspective. So, so I would say, yeah, be strong, believe, do good things, be active, be proactive, make things happen, all those sorts of things. And then this too shall pass. Turning our attentions now towards one of the major PLCs in the security business sector, G4S has just provided a trading update for 2020 so far. The group has shown a resilient performance, with secure solutions revenue slightly ahead of 2019 for the first five months of the year, despite the severe economic downturn seen right across the globe. As expected, cash solutions revenues were 16% lower at a total value of £187 million, duly reflecting the impact of lockdown on the retail and commercial banking segments. Secure solutions revenues have experienced growth in the Americas and Asia, with a slight decline in Africa. As expected, the impact of COVID-19 was greatest in the European and Middle East markets, where revenues declined by 6%. Secure solutions revenues for the months of April and May, in fact, declined by 4% compared with the same months in 2019. Cash solutions revenues in April and May were 35% lower year-on-year, but G4S expects its cash solutions business to begin to recover in the second half of the year with the easing of lockdown restrictions. As a whole, group revenues were 1% lower than for the first five months of 2019, while revenues in April and May were 7% lower. 
The group has adopted a prudent stance in relation to liquid resources. It boasts a conservative debt maturity model and, indeed, a strong liquidity profile, which is further boosted by the proceeds being realised from the previously announced sale of the conventional cash businesses, while management has implemented robust cost control and cash flow improvement measures. These have included the deferral of around £100 million worth of tax payments to 2021 across a number of countries. As of 31st of May, the group had liquid resources of £1.5 billion, comprising cash, cash equivalents and bank overdrafts of £0.9 billion, as well as committed unused credit facilities of £0.6 billion. Commenting on the first five months of trading, G4S Group CEO Ashley Almanza explained, and I quote, G4S is at an important inflection point as we rapidly transition towards a highly focused global business delivering technology-enabled security solutions. The sale of our conventional cash business is 75% complete, reducing our net debt and strengthening our strategic, commercial and operational focus. The positives of that strategy are evident. The secure solutions business now represents over 90% of the group pro forma revenues and benefits from a growing proportion of consulting and technology-enabled revenues. In the first five months of 2020, the strength of the group's security business has substantially offset the lower cash volumes. The competitive performance of the group has continued to be strong, with contract wins totaling £1.2 billion worth of annual contract value. This is said to provide further confidence in the group's outlook for 2020 and indeed beyond. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the group continues to reinforce health and safety measures for employees and customers alike, assure service delivery and protect the company's financial performance, cash flow and financial position. As has been previously reported, the group is implementing restructuring and cost-saving measures to reflect the disposal of the conventional cash businesses and also in response to the pandemic. The expectation here is that additional savings will be identified in due course. Going forward, G4S currently expects to deliver resilient underlying operating profit and substantial net cash flow in 2020, thereby placing the group in a strong competitive position as it enters next year. The board is fully confident that the group's diversified revenue base Financial strength and liquidity provides G4S with sustainable resilience and significant opportunities. It's worth noting that the company's results for the six months to the 30th of June 2020 will be published on Wednesday the 12th of August. Visit our website on that date and we'll have the full story for you. Also in the news, the terror attack that occurred in Reading on Saturday the 20th of June served as a tragic reminder of the fact that the UK continues to face a serious and challenging threat from terrorism. 25-year-old Kari Sadala has been charged with three counts of murder and three attempted murders. David Wales, Joe Ritchie Bennett and James Furlong were the people who died. The episode was described as an atrocity by Metropolitan Police Service Assistant Commissioner Neil Bezu, also the head of counter-terrorism policing. Bezu has been leading the investigation into the incident. Prime Minister Boris Johnson stated that he was appalled and sickened by the attack and ventured that Britain would change the law if necessary in a determined bid to prevent any such incidents from occurring in the future. Sadala originally came to the UK from Libya back in 2012. He was arrested last weekend under the Terrorism Act. Sadala originally claimed asylum and was given leave to remain in the UK in 2018. He was brought to the attention of MI5 last year as someone who might travel overseas, possibly for terrorism purposes, but it was assessed that he wasn't deemed to be a genuine threat or an immediate risk. It still holds true that early recognition of the indicators of an attack can reduce casualties and save lives. With this and the Reading incident very much in mind, the Centre for the Protection of National Infrastructure has issued some extremely timely guidance for security personnel on recognising terrorist threats. In collaboration with Action Counters Terrorism, the CPNI has published a 39-page guide entitled Recognising Terrorist Threats, which contains an overview of potential terrorist methodologies, the key components of threat devices, and information on other potential attack indicators. In a similar vein, and to its great credit, ISS Security Services has been working with the Police Crime Prevention Academy to develop a new qualification entitled 
the prevention of extremism and terrorism. This is specifically for security officers deployed by the company. It is in fact a level 3 Ofqual endorsed qualification delivered by the PCPA. For its part, ISS Security Services is planning to put upwards of 120 staff through the qualification. David Beveridge, security manager at ISS, commented, and I quote, We see this qualification as another step towards the creation of a professional and highly qualified security guarding service. My team will now have a greater knowledge of the potential threats we face, early identification of such threats, and what needs to be done to mitigate them while assisting the police service. The announcement coincides with James Brokenshire, the Minister of State for Security at the Home Office, unveiling plans to introduce a protect duty law that will require the owners and operators of public spaces and venues to put measures in place designed to keep the public safe from terrorist action. This is part of the government's overall commitment to improve the safety and security of public spaces. The proposed legislation will put the onus on venues to consider the risk of a terrorist attack and take proportionate and reasonable measures to prepare for and protect the public from such an attack, with such measures including increased physical security, training and also conducting exercises for members of staff on what to do during an incident. The government has said that it will continue to engage with industry bodies in encouraging them to adopt best practice, as well as working with the counter-terrorism police and the CPNI to extend the reach of advice, guidance and training across all sectors. The Prevention of Extremism and Terrorism course is delivered by qualified and experienced experts and covers hostile reconnaissance, the use of open source material and communications, response and actions that can be taken to assist the police in their response or investigations. The Police Crime Prevention Academy is itself part of police crime prevention initiatives, the police-owned organisation that works on behalf of the police service throughout the UK to deliver a wide range of crime prevention and police demand reduction initiatives. The Academy's qualifications have been developed as a result of an agreement between the PCPI and the College of Policing, with the Academy assuming responsibility from the latter for the running of crime prevention and designing out crime courses on behalf of the police service. Terrorists can choose to carry out small-scale attacks, large-scale attacks or a combination to cause maximum disruption. However, all attacks have indicators, either that they're about to occur or have just started. In studying these, the CPNI strongly recommends that its essential security staff have improved awareness in key indicator recognition. Arguably, that statement is more true now than it's ever been in the past. Our final interviewee on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Gary Mercer, the UK sales manager at VCA Technology. Gary's career within the electronic security industry spans almost 40 years and has encompassed spells at Tyco Fire and Security, Norbane, and most recently, Video IQ, where he was the UK director responsible for promoting the company's video analytics solutions. Earlier this week, I spoke with Gary about the role of artificial intelligence in video surveillance, and also the technologies available to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. First, we focused on the latest developments across the surveillance sector as a whole. Gary, thank you very much for joining us on the Security Matters podcast. In your opinion, what are the most exciting developments within the video surveillance space at the present time? I think it's quite an exciting time within the surveillance industry at the moment. There are a number of developments which complement and improve the surveillance side of the CCTV industry. Cloud-based verification is, is, is one, where in particular the reduction of false alarms has been quite evident with the application of that technology. The ability to identify true and false alarms in the cloud has certainly been to the fore of late um, and I know there's been a large number of adopters of, of, of that technology. Whilst not strictly speaking a surveillance application, audio analytics from CCTV cameras is also an emerging and exciting development. 
the ability to detect noise that may be precursor to violence or some kind of civil disorder, uh, even within, say, a, a supermarket that, that it's been utilised to identify areas where a security guard needs to attend fairly rapidly. So, as I said, not strictly speaking visual surveillance, but because the audio is actually coming from the camera, feeding back through to the system, it alerts the security guard to establish exactly what's going on in that particular area and respond accordingly. The forensic search abilities through the uh, either a PSIM or a, a VMS uh, is also quite a, an advanced movement, if you like, within the sphere of surveillance. The ability to post-event to track perpetrators or subjects of interest. It may, it may even be a lost person. For example, from a hospital, you can identify through a, a fairly detailed forensic search, either by colour of that person's clothing or other distinguishing features, and, and identify where that they left the building and potentially, uh, to some degree, even where they are now. AI and deep learning has also been heavily covered in, in the press. People's understanding of that differs from person to person, but there's no doubt that, that there's been significant developments within AI which will benefit video surveillance in general. And one which, which hasn't been discussed too much, I, I think, is the emergence of multi-sensor cameras uh, with the potential ability to meet the holy grail of a 360-degree view from one camera. That is becoming more accessible in terms of cost and performance. And from an installation perspective, being able to install one camera with a 360-degree view could clearly change many installations in the industry going forward. You mentioned artificial intelligence there, Gary. What's the role of AI in the video surveillance sector and what do you see as being the pros and cons of using it in this sphere? I, I think, well, well first of all, the, I think the, the role of, of, of AI, machine learning, deep learning, at this stage, it will complement what a human can, can visualise, if you like. If you look at a remote monitoring facility, for example, that the use of AI will more readily identify an incident rather than being reliant upon the monitoring operative to look at the, the, the system for a prolonged period of time and identify anything untoward. It's much more of a, a, a reactive requirement for, for a, a human to um, observe because, it's, as, as we know, it's, it's quite difficult for a person's attention span to, to be looking at so many screens for a prolonged period of time without losing some degree of concentration. So I think that it will it will flag exceptions so that then the operator can only only needs to look at the exception rather than to concentrate on the screen for any particular prolonged period of time. Facial recognition and object recognition would also come under the AI umbrella, which will enable surveillance operatives to identify persons of interest or vehicles of interest be able to track across cameras. And I think that, that in, in general, the use of AI across the industry can only improve what we currently do. But at this stage, my view is that it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't replace the requirement for a, a human to interpret the information provided or filtered by the AI system. 
I think if we look at the cons of AI, regrettably, we're all somewhat influenced by what we see in TV and films and, and what, what I would class as the minority report type performance is not really achievable in, in, in a competitive and cost-effective manner because of the the GPU requirements. And in some cases, j- just simply the level of performance is not really at the, at the level that, that Hollywood would have us believe that it's at. It is it is very good, but I think that, that to achieve some of the objectives that, that are, are, are often demonstrated on our TV screens, that, that you either would need a significant amount of processing power, which would add greatly to the cost and, and, and would therefore deter any potential users from investing in it. But as that cost continues to come down, I'm, I'm sure that that landscape will, will change. There are also privacy issues, I think, with the, with the use of AI, in particular uh, with regard to obviously identifying individuals either by database or by other methods. And that's clearly something that the industry needs to be, uh, continue to be vigilant about uh, how that data is, is, is stored, kept, and, and is continues to be in, in, in line with GDPR or any other regulations that may be forthcoming in the future. The predictive and behavioural AI, which is often talked about and, and has been for a number of years, is still in its infancy and only as good as, as, as the images presented to the, the algorithm of the camera. So if, if the field of view is, 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 is obscured in any way, that, that will obviously reduce any potential for the AI to do its job. In your view, what challenges has COVID-19 created for security professionals? I believe that physical security team challenges have been high in, in both the public and private sectors, with both the police and the private sector under significant pressures that we've seen on the TV of late. That Within the private sector, the initial outcome of the COVID restrictions was the controlled occupancy in stores and social distancing in public places. The solutions and challenges, if you like, that were born out of that were how we could socially distance within these public spaces and supermarkets and stores in particular that were open shortly after the COVID crisis started. Most of those have been managed by simple people counting systems where the occupancy was was controlled and that has been a challenge in itself if you like for, for, the, for, the, for the security teams because obviously some people are more compliant than others and, and that gives rise to behaviour that we wouldn't want to see in that environment but regrettably has persisted in certain areas. How can these challenges be tackled Gary and what technologies or solutions are available right now for doing so? There, there are, um, in, in terms of, of, of tackling the challenges uh, with regard to the, the gatherings of, of, of people in, um, in public places, in shops etc, there are a number of solutions that, that have, have now been installed at many major retail premises. Occupancy control systems, for example, have, have been installed where that simply enables the, the store operator to define a predetermined level of occupancy and to control that by in its most simple format a traffic light type system where green is go and, and red you have to stay in the queue. Until recently, the, the, that was manned by a security guard, which was not only costly, but at, at times led to 
confrontation, whereas people seem to be much more compliant with the the, the, the simple traffic light or, or stop and go uh, type system. There's also been contactless access control, which is, has, has been quite prevalent in, in some premises where people have been allowed to go in, into to offices and, 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 and other workplaces, uh, but were obviously concerned about maybe having to touch a door that someone else had touched, etc. And And I think there's, there's there's been quite a rise in the installation of contactless con- access control systems. We have fever detection systems that, that um, there's been a great deal of, of press about. And I think that, you know, that clearly some operate better than others. But, but in general, it's as much about peace of mind of the individual um, as, it, as it is about actually detecting specific problems. It, it's really there just to give peace of mind that to office workers and, and to warehouse workers that there are some precautions in place to identify people that may or may not be suffering from COVID-19. There are mass detection systems uh, that, that some companies employ uh, where they're required to wear a mask uh, and, and this will clearly identify that um, and prevent anybody from getting access to the building that isn't wearing a mask. In general, I think there's been robust procedures and, and, and policies put in place. There's been an increased automation of entrance to buildings and access control coupled with CCTV can also potentially identify, if you like, post-event if, if a person is determined to have had or contracted COVID-19, that it's quite easy to use those two systems coupled together to, to track who they may or may not have been in contact with, or if indeed that they've, they've touched, if you like, a, a door or something and, and someone else may have touched it after them. So that it, it, it gives you an audit trail potentially to, to track any potential people that may be infected. Lastly, Gary, as businesses strive to return to normal with retail stores now reopening and warehouses ramping up their operations to make up for the downtime, what considerations should be front and centre for end users in terms of technology investments? Well, I think first and foremost, and, 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 and the most important aspect is that that, that any investment that, that people make in relation to the COVID change of working uh, is to ensure that it is going to continue to add value and or improve security beyond beyond the, the, the COVID crisis. In retail, for example, that some of the systems have put in have, have been installed to to count the number of people entering and exiting the premises that it would be wise for for, for any retailer to ensure that beyond covid it will produce benefit to the business so simply putting a system in that there's, there's only capabilities to count in and count out without adding any value beyond covid should be avoided improvements in in Access control will assist businesses long term um, in terms of building automation and just generally the, the, the controlled ingress and egress of both staff and visitors. Building security, uh, because there have been obviously so many void properties and, and, and empty properties, during the, the, the pandemic, there have been quite a number of security systems installed which would obviously enhance system security within a number of different premises, and and, and perhaps that's that's been a, a, a sort of 
call to action for people that, who had a lack of investment in the security system for a number of years but had now beefed it up uh, because they knew they were going to be absent from the building for several months. But any investment that, that, that made uh, made within the security system it is can be of a, a benefit long term, particularly if, if, if there's an enhancement to, to what they had before in terms of performance and or information, business intelligence information that, that's, that's gained as a result of, of, as a, of an improvement in the system. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Our grateful thanks to David Rubens of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management and also Gary Mercer of VCA Technology for their valued contributions. Many thanks also to our sponsors, the Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters where you can view our podcast and also read the latest news and opinion from the security world you can access our dedicated features content and sign up for our weekly e-news bulletins please do contact us if there are any key themes you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts you can do so on twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. on that note make sure you follow us on twitter at wbm matters as a reminder the security matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on wednesdays Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into the platform search box. We'll see you next time.